0: From Sugar 23,
1: I am Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. I have been waiting to speak to our guest this week for over two years. Her name is Abby Morgan, and she is the playwright and BAFTA and Emmy Award-winning screenwriter best known for Brick Lane, Iron Lady, Shame, The Invisible Woman, and Suffragette. Now, most recently, she's also created the hit series, The Split. We are not here to talk about her incredible film and TV career, although we'll touch upon it. Don't worry. In 2018, Abby's partner of 18 years and father to their two children, Jacob, collapsed on the bathroom floor after experiencing a series of seizures, and he was put into a medically induced coma for seven months. When he woke up, He recognised everyone in their life, his children, his family and friends, but he believed Abby wasn't who she says she was and that she was an imposter, possibly working for the state. Now, Abby has written a remarkable memoir called This Is Not A Pity Memoir, and it's all about what happens when the person you love most no longer recognises you. Abby and I talk about this extraordinary and traumatic but also absurdly funny sometimes in moments experience she had the glimmers of joy that got her through and ultimately why writing this remarkable book helped her keep hold of her own sanity. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I've been lucky enough to have read your book a couple of years ago now so it's so incredible to see it resonating with people and it will finally land in the U.S. Abby firstly how are you? I'm good it's great we've just had our jubilee weekend so we've all got very patriotic we've had
2: a lot of you know strawberries and cream and Union Jack it feels like very much after the party so it's very nice
1: to be talking to you. Oh, great. Yeah, from across the pond. So if we're talking about your memoir. This is not a pity memoir. Why not dive into why choose this title? Mm-hmm. So the
2: first time that I met my partner, Jacob, we were met at a dinner party. And we were talking about books we love. And I was tentatively You know, talking about becoming a writer and that I was chasing a memoir of someone I really admired and a memoir which I loved, which was called Before I Say Goodbye by Ruth Picardy, which was the writings and emails and thoughts of Ruth, who was a journalist and unfortunately was dying of cancer. And it's this very beautiful, often very funny very profound take on what it means to be facing your death and I happened to tell Jacob all about this book and he'd read it but sitting next to him was a very drunk girl who was very rude and uh, very sloppy and basically went oh I can't stand those pity memoirs and so when I'm my own life kind of suddenly had a quality of this memoir and there kind of was an intense and I hope a profound experience. I just felt like, oh, actually, this is a really interesting title. So the book is really a rumination on what a memoir is and, and, and why I'm writing this story.
1: Well, and I wanted to touch upon that because what do you usually look for in a story when you decide to take on something to write about professionally? Is there some type of ping for you to go, I'm going to explore this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think ping's a really good word. I call it the dog whistle. So it's that thing that makes you prick up your ears, but that not anyone else can hear. It's the thing that's, you know, inaudible to the rest of us. And I guess I'm always looking for that in a story. I'm looking you know, when I go and meet someone extraordinary and I think, yeah, they've clearly gotten their extraordinary life, but what is it? And they may say one thing and I go, oh, I've got it. I've got it. It's really about someone, you know, who loses a son, but is battling their own madness or it's really about you know a woman who became absolutely the helm of power in Britain but really it's about a woman who was fighting her class as much as gender and so I just try and look for this thing and often that can come out of research sometimes that can come out of directly meeting someone sometimes it's there's a world that I want to enter I'm looking for the reason why I want to tell it and what I feel I can hear that maybe no one else can hear at that moment and and what I want to try and convey and find from that story that maybe I don't feel I've seen
1: well we'll come to exactly what your story is about and when that moment happened for you within your own life i guess could we start with that normal day the mm-hmm. before
2: yeah I mean the memoir opens on what is a very typical morning in in my in my life it was a hot june morning I'm a mother and I'm a partner to Jacob we've been together 18 years he he was an actor we had two teenage children Jacob um Has an underlying condition of multiple cirrhosis. And so, but he's very high functioning. He'd been shooting a film that week and he just had woken up with a terrible headache. As he describes, you're a terrible nurse, and I truly am a terrible nurse. I'd thrown paracetamol at him and I'd Mm -hmm. kind of promised to come back with something slightly stronger to help him in the afternoon. But I was focused on myself and getting my coffee. And it was the last day of my son's GCSEs. And so, as I headed out, I was I was focused on him, but I was also slightly battling this familiarity, this kind of ennui around Jake's illness that I kind of thought came and went, you know, this sort of low-level fatigue and headaches that Jacob had experienced for quite a long time. And when I came back at lunchtime, everything changed. I found Jacob collapsed on the bathroom floor, and it became very apparent that something was very seriously wrong, and Jake was blue-lit to hospital, and we realised that Jake had experienced a tonic-clonic seizure, which, which was as, as extreme kind of grand mal seizure and so ensued two weeks where doctors consultants tried to work out what was wrong with jacob as he cognitively psychiatrically physically declined to the point that jacob was then in order to save his life put in an induced coma for seven months and during that seven months it became clear that jacob was suffering from anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, better known as Brain on Fire, and that actually it was going to take some time to work out how to heal him and get him better. And so we had a very life and death six, seven months, but we we're very fortunate. And so the book really opens on that first day and and starts to capture what what then ensued kind of a catastrophic grenade in our entire life, upending of the narrative of our life as, as Jacob kind of went through his own recovery and kind of woke up from this coma. And I guess the book is also seen through the prism of my eyes as a screenwriter. Someone said to me when he was in a coma, gosh, can you imagine if he wakes up and doesn't know you anymore? And I had dismissed it as a kind of theatrical, filmic trope, not believing it could happen. But in fact, the very thing that, that we least expected happened. So when Jacob woke up, he woke up with a very rare delusion known as Capgras delusion, which is the belief in imposters. And it can often be focused on, on someone clo- they're close to. Sometimes it can be focused on an object or a dog or a house. But in this case, it was focused on me. And so Jacob, when he woke up, it quickly became apparent that he didn't know who I was anymore
1: there is a line that keeps coming back to me and it's when he says to you, why do you have such an interest in my children? And you're obviously there with him and they're your children together. But these moments that would happen, how did you cope? You said in the book too that there was almost a shaking would come upon you when you first had this realization that he didn't recognize you? Was it a numbing yeah, I mean I
2: think it's such an overload of sensory experiences it's shock it's disbelief it's comedy we've seen these moments in films you know I'd been with Jacob for 18 years I'd, I'd done a drama degree where you had to play those silly games where you had to try and wake up a sleeping lion you know I I just couldn't believe it was happening And I, but one of the, the strongest sensations I had certainly in the first two three days was I kept on asking people if they could feel the underground you know you're the subway I just kept on thinking the, the the ground is shaking under my feet and I could feel like it I can only describe it as kind of energy I now think it was just a massive overload of adrenaline and so I think initially I was just in shock and then you you barter with yourself you tell yourself it can't be true you ask other people and they can't believe it and you know at first it was very mercurial it was very difficult to clearly see was was it me that Jake didn't know anymore could it be me was it anyone else and But it was distilled around Valentine's Day, three weeks or so after he'd woken up, uh, two, three weeks, where I took in a cheesy red cellophane balloon, I tied it to the end of his bed, kind of went, da-da, thinking he'd find it funny. And in fact, I could see embarrassment on his face. And I remember feeling this incredible relief that I hadn't written him a card. And then when the nurse tried to get him to give me a a rose, which she'd very kindly, the nurses have bought roses for all the patient's family, And said, you know, give the rose to your wife. And he he said, she's not my wife. And in that moment, that was when I definitively knew he didn't know who I was anymore. And so the only way I can describe it is, you know, you just, you know, having done the kind of backflip of six, seven months of not knowing if Jacob would live, and then the kind of unbelievable relief that though he was clearly very changed and, and, was going to need a lot of help and a lot of therapy and a lot of work to get better. He seemed to recognise us and you could see flickers of Jacob in there for him not to know me. It was bizarre and peculiar. You reference him talking about our children. There's one day which I describe in the book where I slowly and quickly found ways to develop and communicate with Jacob and one of the things he started to, he initiated was this idea that i must have been hired by the state to look after him and his children and i didn't specifically agree to it i just sort of let it happen and and it and it became a way for him i think to manage to have me in the room we had one day where we were talking about our children his children and we started to talk about mabel and who's my daughter who then was 14 and we got into the conversation of the morning she had been born and and We kind of riffed on the memory of this. It's a very happy memory for me. It was a very sort of gorgeous things about her birth that really resonated specifically. I described it and he described it a little back. And we kind of had a moment of communion where we talked about it. And I said, it was an amazing day. He went, yeah, no, it was an amazing day. I wish you had been there. And in that moment, I realized that, that that was also the perversity was that I could even show that I knew things. I could share stories with him, but he couldn't quite correlate that I was... I'd been in that narrative of his life. I'd been in that story. I guess in so many ways, as a screenwriter, my job is to create and embellish and build character. And suddenly my character was wiped out. You know, suddenly I had been like written out, rubbed out. I describe it as being rubbed out. And that's the best way to describe it. It was like there was some damage within his brain where that kind of shape of me had been rubbed out. So Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that was interesting was that it wasn't that Jake didn't believe that I existed. You know, he he referred to Abby Morgan, his wife, his partner. It was always the ongoing because at that point we weren't married. But actually, it was his belief that she'd gone away and the person that was facing him was was an imposter. So it was a very peculiar (laughs) time. But I am a dramatist. So don't, you know, also I was was intrigued and I would be lying if I said, I wasn't sort of like, this is extraordinary. I was aware how weirdly extraordinary it was. You know, I think every writer has a moment where they go, wow, what am I going to write next? And it, it wasn't that I specifically thought I would write this up, but I did have that same kind of fizz that I sometimes get when I think this is an interesting story. I thought, God, this is interesting. This has gone into another realm here.
3: There are so many great people to follow online. It's a little overwhelming. Just like you, I follow people who make me think, make me laugh, and make the internet a better place. But I used to wonder, what am I missing? My name is Eric Johnson, and I created the Follow Friday podcast to answer that very question. Every week, I talk to talented, creative people about who they follow and why. Every week on Follow Friday, you'll hear from podcasters like Rishikesh Hirway from Song Exploder, YouTube stars like Tom Scott, writers like Kara Swisher, and more. They will tell us about their favorite people to follow and why. It's a guide to the best people on the internet. I hope you will join us at followfridaypodcast.com or just search for Follow Friday in your podcast app to learn more.
1: Was it only after Jacob didn't recognise you that you started to write? Um, no, I,
2: I started the, the day Jacob collapsed. I, I couldn't sleep that first night, so I just sat up in bed with my laptop and I started to type away. And so certainly the first 100 pages of the book I drew very heavily on, on a diary I kept, and I think there's an intensity and a momentum to those first half of the book, which I think kind of marries as well with how adrenalized those first few months are because – one of the things that no one tells you, and certainly films hadn't shown me, was how active comas are. You know, comas aren't this kind of solitary person lying in a bed with a crisp sheet over them and the silence, with the odd peep and the odd crossing of a nurse or, you know, someone sitting holding their hand. It's it's physical. It's it's therapists coming in to move someone's body. It's constant influx of consultants putting on wires so that they can measure brain waves. It's medication. It's blood pressure. It's the drawing of fluids it's you know it's it's blood transfusions it's plasma exchanges it's visitors it's music it's deep grief on a ward when you realize someone hasn't survived it's moments of great joy when you realize someone is, is going to live and they're going to go to rehab it's this it's this incredible intense meaningful place actually mm-hmm. and which we stayed in for, for seven months, you know, and, and went into as a family. As you know, I went in virtually every day for seven months. So, it becomes a kind of fascinating ecosystem as well. And I guess I started to note down and watch and write and communicate. That was the big thing. I was very lucky because Jacob's family was were brilliant, and so were mine. My family were brilliant, and my children were absolutely there as running partners, but we would always communicate. We'd be writing all the time. We'd be calling. We'd be leaving voice messages. And so this huge sort of paper trail of Mm. research started to build as well alongside this. So I kind of started to see this story literally unfolding in front of me, as well as mentally, because I was struggling every day to understand what was happening. And I write to think. I speak often to think, and I write to think. And so writing it all down I found a way to process at the end of every day I would just write down what had happened and I would make notes and I would write down often my feelings and my reactions to things and I think it's what kept me
1: sane. Well I was just thinking about that you know you say you write to make sense of the world but you also wrote I think from my point of view when I read it to place yourself in the world through your own experience Mm. because he's kind of obliterated you from his point of view. And I think when you love someone and build a life with them, it's you see yourself through their eyes, through those interactions. Were there times that you felt your sanity slipping too and you had ways to ground and bring you back? Yeah,
2: I mean I didn't write about all of them. There are certain things I preserved. Um because they were so private and they were so intense where we had to you know, it looked like Jake may not survive. I kept those as sort of those tiny little squares. But I think anything to do with myself, often when it was me, when it was to do with something that was directly affecting me and that I could separate them from a little more, I would go in brutally and hard on that. And writing became an act of resistance to me. What I came to see, certainly when Jacob. Started to come home was that it's not that he forgot me, he'd forgotten himself, and he, it was himself who's obliterated. And one of the things that I found in a very key moment, actually, in terms of the storytelling, was that Jacob's voice started to come to me. I started to hear the Jacob that I knew before this because he was very silent. I started to hear it in my head, so I started to write as if I was communicating to him. And I kept on thinking, I must tell him the story of what's happening to himself. So it was a very kind of quite an existential experience. You know, the idea of grief stricken weirdos who throw themselves on the coffin because they're so attached. You're so connected. You can't bear to be separated. I didn't realize how interwoven my life was. My mortgages, my finances, my shared history, my memories were dependent and reliant on him for the last 18 years. And when I was ejected from his life, I was also ejected from those memories. And so the writing also became a way for me to start to write down the story of us. So I start, I write about how Jacob and I first met. I write about our early years together. I write about the fights. I write about the joys. I write about the nuances of our relationship. Because I I was trying to understand who we had been, who we were, did we exist? I was trying to write myself and us back into existence. And although the the writing is written in a very kind of, you know, automatic, kind of flowing way, it's also, there's a huge amount of control in there, mm-hmm. because I'm writing through the prism of, of, of a screenwriter. I'm writing to know when the plot twists happen, and I'm writing to know when There are the moments of tragedy. I'm trying to capture the moments of humor. And that was going on all the time. It's the way I see the world. It's the way I filter experience. So the book in a way is me also filtering, but also recognizing and creating the story of it as it was happening, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, there's also an absurdity that you capture. A, I think we get such a sense of, The family dynamic, like this was a happy family.
2: Yeah, but I also talk about the fights. I talk about the therapy. One of the things that was so interesting and has been so interesting is that you realize how you pack away parts of yourself in a relationship you know you 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 compromise you accommodate one another it really made me have to go okay which bits do i want to take which bits do i like where did, did i like that did i physically like the sofa there do i want that picture there you know i i kind of recolonize my life at the same time as you know bringing jacob home it it it's become a extraordinary reset and invariably there is the absurd that comes out of that you know the book the book is full of the absurd moments, realising that you've inadvertently been written out of the birth of your own child in itself is absurd. Or, you know, the kind of uh, the conversations, the games that I would play with Jacob, where I would say, Jake, quiz me today, ask me questions about yourself. And and I would, I would get every answer right, every football team, every funny moment, every birthday event that had happened, I'd get everyone right. And internally, I'd be like you know, punching the air going, he must believe it's me now, but he would look at me with the suspicion of a magician who'd nicked his watch, you know, who'd kind of somehow was wearing his watch, and he'd be thinking, how, how did you do that? You know, he he didn't think, oh, of course, hallelujah, she's back, you know, so that in itself became incredibly motivating, and at times very frustrating, and I tried to squeeze the joy out of life, because, I had a lot of joy around me. I had a very supportive family, both Jake and mine, but I also had two teenagers. And teenagers need, teenagers have their own dramas. Teenagers need a life. You know, walls needed to be painted. Microwaves needed to be replaced because they blew up as a result of a melted down bag of popcorn. Your life goes on. Life goes on. And I tried to use the metronome of that life to give meaning. And and what I came to realise is is. You know, the making of popcorn with your kids is the meaning of life. The birthday, the sharing of cake with your family is the meaning of life. It's it's not the winning of awards. And if it
1: is, it's the sharing with the people you love. You touched upon that community that was around you, the friends and family, the doctors and nurses, but also I think friends. I'd love to talk about some of those friendships that got you through those women that know your sense of humor. They knew when they could make a joke to break, you know, just help you. Or when they knew it was, no, it was time. Because even in the first scenes, you call your best friend. Yeah, I mean,
2: the friends I lent into, one of my closest friends, my best friend, had just herself gone through cancer, was just finishing up her treatment as I was going into it. And, you know, and that was really complex and painful and brilliant because... I, I had someone who completely shared it, but in many ways I felt this huge guilt because she'd supported me through everything with Jacob and that was why she had cancer and now I had cancer. So there was a kind of hierarchy of grief going on in that. But she was brilliant and tremendous and helpful and it really helped that her daughter and my daughter were best friends. There were the neighbours that I talk about. She left me a jar of honey every Sunday on my front doorstep or some eggs or my sister who i am very close to who I work with yes she's family but she's also one of my closest friends you know she's my first reader of the book there was my dog you know who knew that there was so much love and certainty and reassurance in the warmth of a dog every night who would lie by your side and wake up when the foxes were scratching outside in the garden and then I guess there was my female oncologist you know um, I like through whatever three four months into Jake's recovery and And obviously I write about this. You know, when I developed cancer and I discovered that I had this pain in my chest, which was stage three, grade three cancer, that in itself was, I was reeling again. And mainly because I had to convince my kids that they could believe in the world and they could trust in in one solid parent that I was going to stay solid. And then when that happened, I really had to dig deep. But my female oncologist was just off the chart. She was so thoughtful, so kind. And I just felt this huge sense she got it. She got that I was needed. She got that she was going to do everything she can. She was going to tweak that medication. She was going to make the anti-sickness meds work for me. And I've worked with the same female colleagues for the last 15, 20 years. So they were amazing. I lent into them. So I guess I found magic and hope and friendship.
1: I mean, your greater career is so extraordinary, but... The you the split that's I think in its third season that's so mm-hmm. fabulous. At what point did were you writing in the writers' room for that? Although you are the writers' room, aren't you? How? Y- so
2: I was working on the second series of the split. I was just I was just writing the second series when Jacob collapsed, and then we were just shooting it when I got breast cancer. So that was sort of I started to write it in the autumn, early spring of 2018, and we shot that in in twenty eighteen, the summer of twenty eighteen. And and the way that worked when Jacob was in hospital was that the offices where I Sister Pictures, which is the production company I work with on that show, it was about a ten minute walk between the hospital and their offices, and they were amazing. So I would go into a script meeting and they were there when I took the most awful calls, you know, the calls that they would say, you need to come in now, he may not make it. And they were there when I was so tired and I'd been up all night or I was going through chemo, they were there and they'd let me lie down on the sofa and they'd feed me haribos and they'd say, We'll come back in an hour and we'll start up again. So they were they really lived through the experience, as did the actors. And then when Jacob came out of rehab and then we kind of went through the recovery period, so 2019 into 2020, that's when I started to build and shape the new series. And in fact 2021 was really at the peak when Jake was right in the middle of his recovery at home and I'd written series three and the last series. And in fact, it took me a long time to see it, but it was only when I watched the last series, I realised how much of what I'd gone through, I'd poured into those characters. It's a show about a group of family lawyers, female family lawyers, siblings, who all work together, a mother and two daughters, and then a third sister who is kind of the young, you know, the younger sister who's the joy in it. It's about their lives and their loves and their losses and their breakups. And ultimately, it's about the character of Hannah Defoe, who's this family lawyer, and I always designed it as three series, three seasons, you'd call it, because I wanted to look about the legacy of divorce. So it opens on our central character in series one, looking at the divorce of her own parents, and then through series two, embarking on her own affair, and then having to face her own divorce in series three. And series three is about loss. It's about families having to reconcile and re recover and regroup when a a marriage is obliterated and an ecosystem falls apart. And I can see so many parallels with what I was going through and and I can hear so much resonance in in the dialogue of those characters.
1: Also, your relationship with Jacob, he was an incredible partner. The way you structured your lives together as parents, you could go off and work. So I thought it was so interesting to be a woman and to think, how do we do this? Doing it all is impossible. It's just ridiculous, an idea. How do you negotiate? How do you build a career and a life and a family? And I think here in this book, it's certainly that's not what it's the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about it, but it is an incredible example of, A partnership.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I wonder what this experience would have been like if it had happened at the start of our relationship and not 18 years in. Because, you know, it was 18 years of evolving and shaping and fighting and resolving and coming to terms with the way our family worked, you know, in in many ways, I used to, we used to laugh and say it was quite a 1950s marriage, you know, and quite a role reversal. But it didn't just happen, we evolved to that, you know, Jacob as an actor was an actor. And there's always that moment with actors, which is feast and famine, you have those periods when you do and don't work. I guess I had a certain passion, I had a career. And so it very naturally evolved that Jacob was the stay at home dad. And, you know, that that phrase, can you have it all, you can have it all if there's another person in the room willing to help you. So, So I had a huge amount of pulled from him and he really ran our lives and when he did collapse and when he did go through it, I really had to examine how much I had delegated to him and whilst that gave me an absolute clear reign to write and you know it was amazing I, I could work late I did work late when I sat down with my children quite recently and I asked them what were their five favorite days they described their five favorite days but the reality was I wasn't in one of them Oh, there was that amazing day when we went to San Francisco and we crossed the Golden Gate Bridge and I was in LA working. Or there was that amazing trip when we went interrailing across Croatia and then to Germany and I was in London shooting a show. And so one of the things that this last three and a half, half four years gave me was that my kids weren't quite cooked and I got to be part of the final bit of their baking if in a way. And I really am grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. And I guess I write about that in the book as well. I write mm-hmm. about the way I had to find myself, you know, in losing Jake as a partner, I also had to find myself again as a mother, I guess, and as a a stay-at-home mom in many ways.
1: Well, thinking about your work, do you feel that this experience has now shifted what you're drawn to or the time you will spend on certain projects? I mean, I think it seems from the outside that you are highly specific about any work you will take on it's going through a
2: change I mean I was actually going through a change just prior to this in terms of looking at my workload Jake collapsed a few months before my 50th birthday and I was really starting to examine how much I'd been taking on in terms of work and how much time I was away and I think for me, like a lot of people, COVID and the pandemic hitting was also very interesting because it it did make me kind of simplify my life. And I'm very intentional about what I do now. I think very carefully about what I want to do, not just about the subject matter, because that's always at its heart. That's always the thing that draws me. But I think about what kind of experience I want to have, often for two, three four years longer being diagnosed with cancer and now two years clear I never take those trips to the oncologist for granted and so I I work in much smaller blocks and I try and think about what I can work on and what is going to be significant to me but also what's going to be fun you know I've worked with some brilliant directors and some brilliant producers and I've been very very genuinely lucky in my career but nobody is immune to working with can I use the word assholes? And no one is immune to working on projects that you may have done for the money and then you deeply regret. And I, I, I weed those out pretty quickly now and I choose who I work with very carefully.
1: The book definitely, I feel, distills for those of us who obviously haven't had your experience that reminder to hold those people you love tight and to prioritise that over other things. It's a real recorrection reading your book.
2: I think that's really interesting to use that word correction actually I love it because I would say that what's happened to us whilst I wish it had never happened and it's very strange that because I also see the huge gifts it's given me but I still wish it had never happened I still wish that Jacob and my children had not gone through and myself to us had not gone through what we've gone through but it has been the most extraordinary reset and that's a reset around damage I have been lucky because That idea that the book says, hold those you love close. I'm not just talking about anybody, I'm talking about the fact that I got to hold Jake close again. Because when you think that you're going to lose someone, the life of someone, I mean it's still I can feel my voice drop when I talk about it. And when your own life is in question, you hold on to that because it's the reminder that it a reset's a good thing. And so we got lucky. We got lucky. Jacob has come through this and come through it more than we would ever have hoped for. Specifically in the last six months, he's made the most incredible recovery. Only last night I was with him and we walked down Marylebone High Street together. It's a very beautiful, very exclusive street in London, but at the weekend we got to walk down Marylebone High Street, something we used to do as a kind of Saturday morning treat and we'd stop and have our favourite coffee. or we'd, And it was such a joy and I couldn't believe... I was with him doing this and I kept on looking at him and we went to our local butchers there and we didn't even buy anything. But the joy he took just looking at his favourite cheese shop and his favourite butchers, we didn't buy a thing, but he hadn't been there for four years. It was like I was shaking again. I got that shaking feeling again. And I was like, this is pure joy that I get to do this because I didn't think I was going to get to do this again with him. And, and, and we were not an ideal marriage. You know, anyone knows us. We fought and we disliked each other and there were times where it didn't look like we would survive. But the one thing is about Jacob is I, I really, really liked him and I really, really like him. He's still my favorite person in the world. So I do say that with a privilege. And when I, I'm aware with the book. You know, I'm aware that I was with people who didn't survive. I saw people in the ward who didn't survive. I've had friends whose partners didn't survive. I feel gratitude I did, but I feel a huge sense of loss they didn't get to do that. Yeah, well, this
1: probably leads in to my last question because I have to let you go. What lights you up?
2: Hearing my daughter and Jacob laugh again together because that's something that's been really hard to regain. It's been devastating for me but i've written a book which has really helped me and it's been devastating for jacob but he's slowly rebuilding but for your children you forget that this is a significant experience that shaped them and what you hope is that they'll regain some of that which they lost and so i heard my daughter and jacob laughing downstairs yesterday and i felt that was, that lights me up to see the most important thing was that jake survived and jake had a life And that became bigger than me and him. It became about him and wanting him to have a life in the world. And so a joy for me is now to see Jake ride a bicycle. It's to see him telling me he's just been to his favourite deli. You know, it's to see the joy he feels about going to see a musical or singing along to a bit of Sondheim. Those are great joys, to see that all is not lost.
1: Avi, that's beautiful. And thank you so much for speaking to me about the book, but also for sharing the story.
2: Thanks so much. Really nice talking to you. Thanks.
1: Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Ulmer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radovsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks.